This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. There's a long pontoon takes us right out. I mean, almost a quarter of the way across this part of the Orwell. But I've already got that feeling of movement below my legs, that sort of as the pontoon is rising up and down on the tide. I'm in the tiny hamlet of Pin Mill in Suffolk. We're about halfway up the river. Ipswich is beyond and then Harwich is down out to the open sea, very important harbour. But this is a very special place because here you can get a real sense of the history of sailing and particularly of boat building. And so for this week's Open Country, I've come to discover more about that. And I'm going to start with Jonathan Gornell. And I'm just about to go out onto the boat that he has built. Morning. Morning. And what a lovely view we get of Pin Mill, this little sort of hamlet sort of hugging onto the side of the River Orwell here. And then obviously the dominance of boats and masts and keels and hulls and it's very picturesque. It's <laughs> tremendous isn't it it's sort of hidden away as well you, you can't stumble on this place accidentally unless you're coming by boat and um, the cottages over there used to be coast guard cottages there were two boatyards here around which the village has sprung up and, and of course where there are sailors is a pub and there's the button oyster which has stood there for I forget how many centuries. <laughs> With the tide lapping against Absolutely. its foundations yeah. but if we turn round and look out across Across the River Orwell, I get the first glimpse of the boat (laughs) that you built. And I'd love to find out about why it is that you, a journalist and writer, you came to build a boat. This boat, of course, is is built for a a four-year-old, so uh, with me in it, it does start to look slightly out of scale. It's sort of Gulliver's Travels. We're lucky today because there's a fleet of old Thames barges all moored here awaiting their annual race which starts from Pinmill. So we're, we're very blessed to see all these beautiful old boats, many of which go back over 100 years. Built here, some of them, Webb's Yard in Pinmill, where now of course there are no barges being built and very few wooden boats being built, sadly. I think the problem is, of course, that everyone would love to have a beautiful clinker-built wooden boat. But, of course, they cost so much in time, which, of course, means money. And people can get afloat on a plastic boat now for a fraction of the price. And who can blame them? Jonathan, I feel you're beginning to get your stroke now. And we're in this tiny wooden boat. Now, tell me about why it is that you came to build a boat well (laughs) one very long sleepless night I was wandering up and down with my newly born daughter in my arms I was seized with this idea about connecting her through me to the sea which I have loved and which has done so much for me over the years and I suddenly thought "I, I should build her a boat but I'm looking at it and apart from its beautiful pretty nursery blue paint colour that it has 
I can see, you know, that it is hand-built piece by piece. But why did you want your daughter Phoebe to have a boat? I, I was 58 when Phoebe was born, and two or three years before she was born, I suddenly had to have a bypass operation. I, I suddenly realised that life is very short, very precious. And I also realised when Phoebe was born that being realistic, you know, and being 58, with the bypass behind me, I didn't know how long I was going to be around, frankly. But I wanted something to remain in the world behind me that would remind her, A, of how much her daddy loved her. I know, I know this is upsetting you talking about it. But it, it's... Um, as well as being a token of that, it's also a, a, a practical and wholly impractical gift to give her because I think it will teach her that there's, there's adventure to be had, there are horizons to be aimed for. Never will you experience anything like being in a boat and losing sight of land but being in control of your environment. Jonathan, you could, could have given her just a nice little plastic boat something made out of fiberglass but i think that i think that would have been the wrong message because really if it's worth doing surely it's worth trying to do it properly and of course a, a boat like this also captures centuries of history vikings were building this sort of boat in 200 AD with clinker now the whole clinker technique is just astonishing there's no glue going on here. It's, it's plank on plank, overlapped by about an inch or so, all held together with copper rivets, which is just driven through in a very traditional style. And that's it. And if you don't make the, the face where the two planks meet more or less accurately, then the boat springs a leak and you sink. <laughs> you have this immensely strong connection with, with the water. How and where did that start and what did it bring to you in your life? Well it started It started right here. Here we are in Pym Mill, a, a mile or so upriver is Wolverston, where I went to school at the age of 11. It's a boarding school, an experimental boarding school run by the Inner London Education Authority for inner city kids. I was put on a bus one day at County Hall from Peckham and then someone starts teaching you to sail. For me, it was a sudden discovery of a, a whole new dimension, and it's not solid, it's not predictable, but it is completely the route to adventure. We're in the, the middle of the, the River Orwell now, and, and it's peaceful and calm, but your experience of being out in the water is a lot more extreme than that. You're referring to rowing the Atlantic, mm. yeah, which I, I had two stabs at. There we were, 39 days at sea, when we were caught up with by the tail end of Hurricane Alma, uh, which broke our lightweight carbon fibre boat in two. We were in our survival suits, thick rubber suits, which are sealed at the necks and feet and hands, and I made the mistake of undoing mine because it was really warm. And at that moment, the, the, the killer wave struck, and I found myself in the water, somehow managed to escape from the wreckage, only to discover that instead of floating up with the waves, I was sinking with the waves, and I realised that my rubber suit was filling with water. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to drown. Luckily, uh, one of my teammates surfaced from the boat, Pete, swam over, rescued me, dragged me back to the boat, and so I was saved. But I, I didn't want to lose my connection with boats and the sea, 
and, and I suppose I'd always I'd always looked you know when you walk down a beach and you, and you see a beached fishing boat it's the clinker ones that attract your attention but I think it's instinctive because there is there's something clearly beautiful going on something quite almost magical about the fact that you've, you've taken hundred year old tree and turned it into a boat incredible we're back on shore we've pulled up quite neatly at Harry King's boatyard so we'll go there and we'll meet some of the people who've been very much part of your creating this craft. I've got a real sense of how quickly the tide has ebbed out and exposed a long shore of sort of weedy grass and then a concrete and gravel path here which is now bone dry but the tide was lapping over it not that long ago and I'm walking up towards Harry King and Son's boatyard and it's Sarah and Gus Curtis who own and run it. This feels to be like an everyman's yeah, place very much so. rather yeah. than some sort of fancy marina. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a proper working man's harbour, I think. So that's the leisure out there. Where we are now, this is the hard graft bit of it, in the boatyard. Mm. So let's walk towards some of the buildings at the back end. Yeah. And as we do that, there are a couple of beautiful tall sailing yachts there. Look at the masts reaching up into the blue, blue sky. And there are upturned little rowing boats here, so we see their, their bottom ends. So we were coming up to our main workshop with the, with the sign above it. So that was originally built as a, as a maltings. These buildings were very much connected with the hard and with the use of the river because the malt would have been taken away by barge. Grain would have arrived by barge. The river moved everything from here and to here, so it's all sort of very interconnected. This boatyard, Harry King's boatyard, has quite a history in its own right. Yes, yeah, so it was started in 1850 by George Garrett um, and he very quickly became known for building very good uh, clinker dinghies, much like Jonathan's been building, but slightly bigger. So in 1896, when George Garrett died, Harry King took over the boatyard and then that was passed down to his sons Norman and Sam. And Sam was the one that built the clinker dinghies and he built them in what we call the top shop. And you're part of that tradition as well. Yeah, I, I very much enjoy building them. I wish we had more orders to build more of them, but uh, you don't always. Mm. <laughs> it's very much goes with how rich people are feeling at the time as well, I think. <laughs> so we'll come to the vast open doors of the workshop. There is a sort of a boat up on props yeah. there. There's years, maybe even generations of boat building in evidence everywhere you look. Now, how important is that continuation of, do we call it a trade or a craft or an industry? Or a lifestyle. <laughs> In this day and age, when so many jobs perhaps are threatened with robotics and, and computers, I think to actually get back to using your hands and in a creative way particularly, I, I think there is a future in boat building still, very much so. We're very much hoping Pinmill will continue as it always has. With boat building? With boat building. Tagged onto the side of the workshop, there's a small office space. And what I'm interested in, Sarah, is that Arthur Ransom, the author, Swallows and Amazons, had a connection with this place, a strong connection. He did, yes. He came to Harry King's boatyard to have at least two boats made. Mm -hmm. He sailed on the waters of the river Orwell and this was an inspiration for the book 
he wrote, we didn't mean to go to sea. We didn't mean to go to sea, yes. So, <laughs> Which was the, the Swallows and Amazons characters, yes. but here on the east. The beginning of the book describes coming down Pinbill Lane uh, and you would think it was still the same today, you know, the description of it. And the children are staying at the Elmer Inn, which is where Arthur Ransom stayed. And then the idea is that they went out and they met this little boat. And he did the same trip across to Holland, feeling obviously he couldn't write a story about sailing off and, and accidentally ending up in Holland without actually doing it himself. The sort of the fictional alongside the very hard-working, incredibly skilled craft of, of boat building. I think building a boat is one of the, you know, it's an exceptionally creative thing to do, isn't it? So I think, yeah, similar minds, really. While Jonathan physically built the boat, he couldn't have done it without gleaning knowledge and getting help from other people who have a long association with boat building. And in particular... Fabian Bush. Well, I designed the boat for a class that I run in traditional boat building in Wivenhoe. What is a clinker boat? A clinker boat is built in a tradition where planks overlap each other where they join. And that's just distinct from a carvel boat where the planks are laid edge to edge. With a carvel boat, you get a smooth hull. With a clinker boat, you get something like weatherboarding, where the planks overlap. I love the planking round the sides, and I love, too, the ribs. You know, you feel your own ribs, and it's, it's just... It's very like a, all animals. Yeah. You go to a museum and look at the skeletons of whales and fish, and you can't help but feel that early boat builders would have looked at yeah. animals and seen the structure... You're teaching people the, the skills of being able to build a boat. But what is it that you think they're searching for in wanting to do that? Boats always have a lot of mystique about them, a mystery. There are just so many people, they just cannot understand how wood is bent into these shapes because everything that we're used to in our houses and homes tends to be square. There's this mystique. And the other thing is that Boats are, they're an icon of history. They were the spaceships of the past. And also they were the biggest things that often were constructed if you go back. And they had to be launched. So there's an incredible technology that's always impressed people enormously and it carries on. As we've been going around in this lovely little hamlet of Pin Mill, people have been commenting about what's happening on, I suppose you could almost call it like the village green. It's got to do with dressing sails. So I've come out to find for myself, and you are... Jonathan Webb. What we're we're doing is dressing the sails, um, Thames Sailing Barge sails. Uh, Traditionally, were made of flax, and to protect them from rotten, they were dressed with a red ochre, yellow ochre, paraffin wax, fish oil seawater, lots of things were added to a, a recipe. Today, our sail, these sails are made of duridon, which is a, basically a, a plastic derivative, but it fades after a while. And to protect the stitches and the rope, we dress it with a modern-day equivalent. Right, so the principle is still the same. You yeah. are trying to preserve these We're trying to protect the stitches. Sails. We are, but the yeah. thing is, what you're doing is you set the sail out... Yeah. <laughs> and then you and, and, and your wife perhaps have got brushes yeah. and you are sloshing this. Exactly. 
preserver, yeah. restorative fluid on the top of this sail. We are, yeah. You're doing it in the middle of the village. It's great, uh, yeah. Are you allowed to do this on the village cream? No one's ever told me I can't. <laughs> because you when leave. I was, when I was a small boy, many years ago, I could watch other people do it, and I've never seen anyone be stopped. <laughs> My um, family have been in this area doing this work since early 1800s. I mean, my father built wooden boats, yachts, but um, that sort of died out when fiberglass come along. You don't see young people coming into the, the boat world at all, really. So we need to do more in this country to encourage people to get sailing. Could I just say, though, that just seeing this corner... I've missed another bit, haven't I? You've missed a would bit. You like to, yeah. Would you like to have a go? Yeah, I'd love to, yeah. yeah. You can tell people I'll that you've dressed the sail on Pinwheel Common. Red fluid on brush. Get it right into the corner, into the grooves of the rope. You're a natural. I think I found a new uh, You're doing quite occupation. Well. Yeah. When can you start? What's so striking about here in Pin Mill at this particular time is that there are a number of barges lined up side by side settled in the mud now because the tide has gone out but I've got the chance to go and board one of them and I'm walking along a gangplank here I'm going to meet Nicholas Crook because his boat is called Melissa there it is over there I have to clamber over Marjorie and as you're crossing the barges to get to Melissa there's this like um, collection of tall masts which have got their sails all tied up against them and they're dark ochre red and there's all the rigging and ropes and then finally aboard the Melissa We race it um, but it takes an awful lot of people to look after it. We have to have 12 crew to sail this when we're racing it hard but they used to sail them with their cargoes with just one man and a boy. It was originally built as one of 20 uh, in Southampton in 1899. It was used in its initial years to bring Portland stone right from the south coast right the way into London and when they were building all the Admiralty Arch and, and places around there. Tim's barges were like the lorries of the eastern south coast. I mean they were designed to take any cargo and the beauty about the east coast is what well, you can see from here it's flat and muddy and the tide's out at the moment. So they used to bring these things in at high tide. Tide goes out, they sit on the mud, they can get a horse and cart down here, uh, unload it onto the horse and cart or lorry or whatever it may be, and off they go. And there's probably about 50 of them left after that two and a half thousand. If you go into any creek anywhere on the east coast, you'll see old hulks everywhere. And there's probably a, a core of about 20 still used today, private owners, and there's a whole series of matches where they race them. We've had it up to about 16, 17 miles an hour through the water, and to see that with water coming over the foredeck and water down the sides and everything and a healing over, and especially when you get them out in a race and there's nine or ten of you sailing together, it's just fantastic, just fantastic. Oh. A pin mill and its boats have been inspiring artists and writers for many years, and it's still the same today. And I've come into the Pinmill Studio, which is owned and run by award-winning photographer, Anthony Cullen. You have the most fabulous collection of black and white photographs of, you know, the, the decades of work that happened outside. That's right, yeah. No, we've got um, an exhibition at the moment of pictures that Arthur Ransom took 80 years ago. I just love the way he has honoured the labour of the boat building 
Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you can just see from these pictures that the, the labour-intensive aspect to it all. The, I mean, it's almost like the Egyptians building pyramids. Let's go out, shall we? OK, yep. So we've got the footpath here leading down the hard. We've got the barge blocks, which is a series of lines, you know, I'd sort of encourage people to, to look where they lead and, 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 you know, maybe those lines would lead to a, a barge, which would be the focal point. I'd also tell people to maybe look up and the big skies and don't just have the foreground, maybe look at having a lot more sky or the opposite, maybe angle the camera down and think about the foreground and, and you know, utilise those leading lines. So it's all about drawing the person into the picture. You have travelled the world with your work. Yeah. Um, you've seen beautiful, magnificent places, but you've also worked, you know, in the midst of war in mm -hmm. Bosnia, in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So... What has that experience brought to you being in this small hamlet, boat-building, mud-flat little place? It's documentary. I mean, obviously, that sort of thing is capturing stuff, telling the world, trying to make a difference. Um, obviously, somewhere like Pin Mill, I'm not trying to you know, make a difference as such. I'm just trying to, to tell a wider audience that mm -hmm. it's not just you know a pretty little place. There are people hitting club hammers against metal you know there's that kind of real essence of of you know doing stuff for yourself and, and creating still which which is brilliant anthony cullen is not the only artist who has been inspired by this setting at pin mill the same is said of a group known as the east anglian marine artists group and where I am sitting now at the picnic table outside the Butt and Oyster, this very famous pub, I'm in the good company of Ian Piper. Ian, you are a member of this group and, and they started here back when, in the 70s? Yes, they did. They started in 1979. <laughs> Amongst the group, there was an admiral, who no doubt was a chairman, rightly so. They met and they painted together. They were plain air painters which is very important to get the atmosphere. You look at the atmosphere today, these lovely old barges. We're at one end, as it were, of the bay. Um, yes. And we've got the hard that's sort of, sort of the created by the local community to give them that harder surface to be able to Absolutely. have more use from the bay. That, but as an artist, where would you take yourself to create the paintings? Right. Here I'm thinking of Sego, Edward Sego, who really made this spot an important painting centre. He's been followed by hundreds, naturally, because his work is now renowned worldwide. He would go down to the cottage at the end there, set up his easel, and he'd be looking here at this lovely L-shaped composition. You've got the button oyster with its lovely cream walls and its lovely pan pile roof with the backdrop of... Of the woodland. The woodland. Yeah. Counterchange. Away is the hard on the other side, and you've got the lovely verticals there Shall of the mast. Shall we Where he chose, and then we can look back at it. So this is the little river stream, the Grindle, mm. and uh, in due time, the Grindle gets choked up with mud, and that makes it very difficult to get your dinghy, because it's nice to walk along the hard with your dinghy in, in the water, so you can just pull it along easily. To dig it out, they have the Grindle dig, and everybody joins in, children, and with buckets and spades, and it's a big celebration. The group 
that is set up and is still active today. It's very much about artists who have a very distinct connection with the marine environment. It's a case of recording a scene because time passes by and the ways of the past disappear. So we're catching that moment and it's only when you're out on the sea the barge is heeling over, the, the sails are slapping. You've got to be out there in a force eight or force nine to know really what it's all about. And you carry that with you. You think of the coastline and boats. It's amazing how many people have those types of images in their homes, even yes. though they have nothing to do with yes. the sea. We are a maritime nation. We must never forget that. When people see a marine painting, I think they get something of that spirit from that painting. Do you think a boat is, is a work of art? It's, it's a work of art, absolutely. It has to be a work of art. It couldn't be anything else. It's because it, it's, it's a creation. Look at those lovely shapes. Can you compare those to a lorry? They have a validity, and that's why people love them. That's why they go to the trouble of preserving what were commercial craft. And bless them for doing it. I started this morning on a tiny sky-blue clinker boat built for love. But from the people I've met here at Pin Mill, it seems that every boat is crafted with a degree of love. And that passion is truly fulfilled when it's launched out into these waters and beyond.